News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. So Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is going to meet this afternoon with the country's premiers, virtually, of course. But this is their first meeting of 2021, their first since before Christmas. Our chief political correspondent, David Aiken, joins us now. He will be tracking the developments today. Good morning, David. Morning, Simi. And it's their first meeting really since vaccine distribution got underway. And we've all seen reports right across the country that... You know, that uh, it's not in some cases gone as smoothly as perhaps some expected. In fact, uh, earlier this week, Prime Minister Trudeau was telling us here in Ottawa that he was, quote, frustrated that uh, vaccines were sitting in freezers and not getting into people's arms. And in fact, the latest data we have is that about 440,000 doses of uh, both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine have been distributed to the province, and of that 440,000, um, about 44% have actually been administered. And, of course, it's a two-dose vaccine, and, and some jurisdictions are holding back the second dose. Those that don't want to hold it back say, we need to know we're getting more vaccines. And that's where I think, right, we're going to start this meeting today is the premiers are going to give the prime minister an earful about that, quote, frustration comment, because they say, and I talked to a bunch of premier's offices yesterday, they say they're getting conflicting information from both federal officials, uh, political officials and bureaucratic officials. Um, they've had, you know, how many vaccines am I getting? They've been getting the number of vaccine deliveries. Uh, this week it's going to be this much, and then somebody changes their mind. So the premiers are really going to tell the prime minister saying you need to get your house in order we need a more reliable uh supply of vaccine of course it's the federal government that is doing all the vaccine purchase right across the country okay so that's yeah there's a lot of them that are concerned about the numbers i know in bc we haven't been vaccinating fast enough either uh there's a lot of political fallout also david of course because of some politicians who have been traveling perhaps over christmas how likely do you think all of those scandals are going to affect today's meeting well, they're, they're playing in the background. I mean, and it's not turns out just politicians. We're seeing, you know, senior healthcare people. I, I was reading the news this morning that, you know, in BC, yep. the, the, the person, the head of the department where Bonnie Henry works took a trip to Hawaii. In Ontario, a top hospital CEO, you know, spent nearly a month in the Dominican Republic. And of course, yes, lots of politicians, uh, chiefly in Alberta, but every legislature or many legislatures, I didn't say every, uh, not in BC, for example, but lots of legislatures have these problems. So w- how does that affect things? Well, first of all, um, all the premiers and the prime minister will continue to reiterate, don't travel. Just do not travel out of the country at this point in time. And don't forget, we've had new travel restrictions that came in as of this morning, early this morning. If you're flying into Canada, you need a clean COVID test before you get on the plane. There's been some controversy about that. And I think that some premiers may want even tighter travel restrictions, you know, concerns about this new variant of COVID. Um, we've seen you know, some evidence it's here in Canada. We don't want to see a lot more evidence. So that definitely is going to be part of the talk too on border and travel and what right. everybody can do to keep things out. Right. And also, I mean, the first ministers had agreed at earlier meetings to do more about protecting people in long-term care homes. That's a huge concern for so many people. Mm-hmm. What is the status on that? You, you, you're right. They've been talking about this for 
five, six months now in these these uh, routine meetings, and they keep squabbling over money. Uh, the federal government, I think, wants to provide some cash to provinces to assist with long-term care homes, uh, but they want to put strings attached to say you have to use this cash in such and such a way. And that gets us into the age-old problem in our federation when money from the federal government comes with strings attached, a lot of provinces, and chiefly Quebec, says, no, just give us some money, and, and we'll decide what we're going to do with it. Everybody agrees there's a problem, but it's just really getting around some jurisdictional issues about how to solve it. In the meantime, the feds, you know, are standing by with, you know, uh, squads of Red Cross volunteers to help in emergency situations, but clearly that's not sustainable. And, uh, that's what the premiers and prime ministers are looking towards is, you know, sustainable fixes to making sure people in our long-term care facilities are safe and protected. All right. Lots of work left to do on that one. David, mm-hmm. thank you. Thanks, Emmy. Cheers. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, starting today, big new rule here. Anyone who flies into Canada must show proof of a negative COVID-19 test within the past 72 hours. Some countries are exempt for another week from this. Uh, United States is not, though, and there's quite a few people down there who I'm sure right now are wondering how they're going to get this test fast enough in order to come home. And there's been a scramble to try to accommodate these new regulations brought in by the federal government. Not many airlines are happy about the way this has all come about. So let's talk a little more about that. We're joined by the president and CEO of the National Airlines Council of Canada, Mike McEnany, for more on this. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. So tell me, this is going to be happening now. How are airlines going to process this? Well, it goes live as of uh, 12.01 a.m. EST uh, this morning. So it's it's now in effect. Uh, We are going to do everything we can. We have to adhere to the regulations. It is now law, and we will be obligated uh, if a passenger arrives and they have not been able to have the test uh, or they perhaps they're unaware of the requirements for the test, uh, we will be required to deny boarding. Uh, what our concern, of course, is going to be for those people that uh, we are going to have to strand uh, in these in these countries abroad, and then also how we're going to have to try and work with with the government at the consular offices and other and other uh, and embassy, etc., uh, to try and make sure that uh, these folks are able eventually to to complete their journey back to Canada. We had been calling on the government for the past five or six months to work with us to implement a very clear and strong testing strategy. We are major proponents of testing and tying that testing to, to quarantine levels. Uh, but unfortunately, the, the government did not heed our call over the, the ensuing five or six months. And we're now having a, a process that was announced last week, but with only a handful of days then until implementation. And that is basically the process we wanted to avoid. Right. So there, that must be a lot of education then for the employees, the employees at the gate, like they have to check now every person's test result? Uh, yes, exactly. And typically on, on a broad border measure such as this, you would have had a great deal of back and forth between government and industry. Airlines are the frontline implementation of a border border measure such as this. It is not government officials. It is airline employees at the airport. So you would have had a great deal of back and forth, and we would have identified the, the communication challenges and the operational challenges. And then you would adjust the regulations uh, accordingly. But because of the time frame, uh, that didn't happen. So 
uh, airline employees will be required then to, uh, to to receive from the passenger the proof of uh, proof of the the test, uh, and of course the proof mm-hmm. that the test is is negative. But there has not been produced by the government a, a series of identifiable clinics abroad that uh, they will accept tests from. So we've been scrambling a bit now to to get testing location information to passengers as well. I I was going to say, like, what's the procedure for that then? Because I would imagine now that that airline worker is going to become that that contact point, right, for the person trying to get home who needs more information. Yes, to become the contact point, uh, and and again, typically on a border measure such as this, there would have been a a lot more communication because there would have been obviously more time. There would have been communication from the airline. There would have been more communication abroad and domestically by the government. Uh, and you would have been you know, taking every every measure possible to try and make sure people are aware of their requirements. The other challenge, of course, is going to be scheduling and, and getting a test that is returned to you within the appropriate 72-hour period. So there's there's a lot of challenges here. Uh, this is the first day of it. We'll, we'll see how this rolls out. Uh, there's other some countries you're, you're given an additional 24 hours uh, for uh, being able to produce the test, but that only lasts for a week, and then everything reverts back to the 72-hour time frame. And as I said, we have been trying to get the government for uh, six months to work with mm-hmm. us, work at airports as well. And you would have seen perhaps a, a different approach, but it also would have involved uh, PCR, and perhaps you also would have been working in uh, rapid antigen testing as well. Right. Now, there are a couple of pilot projects, right, going on in Canada at airports, employing the rapid test technology. How is that working? Uh, there are a series of, of uh, pilot projects, and those were driven by airports, our airport partners, and airlines. So there's a pilot project underway at uh, YVR, and that mm-hmm. is for a rapid antigen test uh, flights to Alberta. Uh, Toronto uh, Pearson Airport and the Ontario government just announced yesterday that they are going to be launching, as, as of yesterday, a uh, PCR test for all inbound international arrivals. That will be free. We have a similar process underway in Calgary International Airport for the past uh, three months. And there's also rapid antigen testing available at at, uh, Montreal Airport. And those are the four airports in Canada that are receiving international. Those those tests are going uh, very well. And what we have wanted to do is move out of uh, these these pilot project approach and take a broad national approach to how we operate testing and and tying it to quarantine measures. But again, that has not uh, happened yet. Right, so because now we're asking people, it sounds like, Mike, to have that test before they get on the airplane. And if they land at certain airports, another test when they land here at home? So there's going to be opportunity. And, and you know, it's a good question. To, what you are seeing around the world is there, there are different ways of, of, of tackling this issue. You will have pre-departure tests. You will have upon-arrival tests. You may then require, uh, a, for example, a rapid antigen test two or three days after arrival, in addition to have taken the PCR test. And then you tie that to the quarantine level that a person must maintain. And you might even have a, a secondary test after that. Uh, all wrapped around ensuring that we're taking the, the, the most appropriate measures possible to continue to protect uh, not only passenger and employee health, but also public health. So that is what drove us to work uh, airports and airlines to launch the pilot programs and provide government with the results of the testing that's going, that's underway and also uh, results in terms of uh, what is the most appropriate means in which to, to take testing right. and the time period to take that testing. Do you expect some confusion in the next couple of days? Uh, we do. We expect uh, quite a lot of confusion, uh, and uh, again, we will you know, we will do everything we can to make this 
program work, we did ask the government for an extension of, uh, of 10 days. Uh, the government uh, rejected that. So now you know, our obligations are very clear legally. If you arrive and you do not have the test, uh, you, you must be denied boarding. Okay, so sounds like a lot of work ahead. It does result in a lot of confusion, doesn't it, Mike? Because people may, even with everything you've just described to me in your firsthand information, I can see why people would be confused about what's required of them. <laughs> well, it's also possible I'm, I'm being a little bit too confusing in how I'm putting forth my, <laughs> no. my, my firsthand information. But yes, there, 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 there's great opportunity here uh, for confusion, and that is why we've been trying for a much more uh, coherent and rolled-out process over the past five months. Right. Is there still a discussion then ongoing with the federal government about improving that system? Well, we are certainly going to continue to try and have that discussion with the government because we do think that is absolutely the required next step here. And and we, as airlines and in the travel industry overall, we fully recognize that we are going to have to continue to drive testing and tying it to quarantine. The vaccines give us all great hope, but we are going to be living with the reality of of COVID for an indeterminate time period. And it's going to be absolutely mission critical that we are continuing to drive robust testing regime, tying it to quarantine measures in order to continue to ensure safe restart of the sector. That's an absolutely mission critical component going forward. All right, Mike, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. Appreciate that. That's Mike McEnany, who's the president and CEO at the National Airlines Council of Canada. You could see why airlines would be frustrated by this. They didn't get a whole lot of notice about this, and now they have to be the front lines of enforcing these new rules of the federal government. Anyone flying into Canada has to show proof of a negative COVID-19 test that had been taken within the past 72 hours of that person trying to get on the airplane. So if they don't have it, well, then and they weren't able to get it, or if there's something wrong with the test or whatever, it is now that airline employee that has to say, no, you can't get on board this airplane. Now, it's tough for a lot of other Canadians because we think, well, what are you doing outside the country to begin with? You're told to avoid travel, right? So there's that aspect of it as well. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, family members who have loved ones in long-term care homes have really done so much to try to stay connected with those loved ones. Remember when we heard that there were staffing shortages at some care homes and family members lined up to take jobs just so they could get close to and stay close to their loved one in those homes. That was just one of the ways that people adapted to try to, you know, get that connection inside the homes. And, you know, similar programs, not just here, but elsewhere across the country, have sparked a whole study on the practice of the lengths kind of that people would go to to make that happen. Joining us now is Janice Keefe, a professor of family studies and gerontology at Mount St. Vincent University in Halifax. Good morning, Janice. Good morning. Tell me about the work that you're doing. What is it that you're looking at? So we're looking at the ways in which... um, Nursing homes have had to uh, adapt to implement some of the public health directives around family visitation policy. So we're really trying to understand uh, what are the policies. And we know that they're shifting over time as, you know, the uh, pandemic ebbs and flows, certainly in our area in Nova Scotia and in Prince Edward Island. And so we're trying to understand how... Uh, what are some of the challenges that the homes themselves are facing so that we can improve the way uh, families can get better access to the 
to the residents. We under, you know, there's, and how can families, what is the experience of those families off the staff and off the residents of some of these policy uh, limitations to their involvement? Right. So are we trying to take this and use it as a learning opportunity so that we don't find ourselves in the same situation ever again? Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely part of it. And, I, you know, we, we may, uh, we're hopeful now with a vaccine, but the vaccine isn't going to change some of the systemic uh, issues that long-term care facilities are facing around staffing, like resources, Space. Where do people visit in a in a safe manner? So, you know, when we opened it up, um, and I understand BC has been a bit further behind, perhaps in uh, other provinces provinces around, and probably because of the incidences. But we now can have uh, you know a partner designated family member come in in both Nova Scotia and Prince Edward Island. And, and we also can have other visitors. Yeah. And so when that happens, how does that affect the lives of the residents? And how does the facility deal with that if they have two people to a room? Or, you know, one family group doesn't want the other family group in the room. Right. Oh, so, yeah. so many things that you have to juggle. Barriers. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I think, you know, government policymakers need to understand what those are, and we need to address some of the fundamental systematic issues. When this pandemic is over, we'll still have the flu. So what will happen if we don't address some of these issues around staffing? Who, who, you know, there's a whole series of additional roles the facilities have to take on uh, to organize and, and schedule these visits. Right. Okay. So that's what makes it so important. Do we get an idea as well, Janice, about how these connections impact the people who reside in these long-term care homes? Absolutely. That's one of the things that we're, we're, we're trying to get at. I mean, I think we all know and we've heard anecdotally, and there's some evidence from uh, some of the U.S. government about the actual effect that lack of visitation has had on the not just the quality of life but the actual uh, deterioration of the residents in long-term care the isolation particularly people who have dementia uh, has been devastating not only for them themselves but the toll on the family and the toll on the staff is uh, just uh, so horrific so what do we hope to achieve then? With your research, when you're done, what do you hope it's used for? We hope that uh, it will highlight some of the continued challenges that the sector itself has in adapting to uh, different policies that you know seem appropriate at the time to keep everybody safe, but we have to balance safety with quality of life uh, having a life worth living for these residents. They're, they're, they're very important people, uh, you know, and so how can we uh, support the system, the facilities to be able to adapt more quickly to create these safe spaces so that visitation can still occur? Right. Okay. Janice, thank you so much for explaining it to us this morning. You're very welcome. Thank you so much for your interest. It's really important to 
highlights the needs of family and residents in long-term care. It really is. So good luck with that work that you're doing. That's Janice Keefe, Professor of Family Studies and Gerontology at Mount St. Vincent University in Halifax. Long-term care homes has been so unfairly impacted by this COVID-19 pandemic, not just the residents who live in there, but the staff and, and of course the families who have loved ones there. And hopefully some of this research that's being done, and this is just some of it, will help us to make sure that we don't have that same situation come up again. This is Mornings with Simi. No words really to describe what we saw unfolding in the United States Capitol yesterday as violent protesters, rioters stormed the Capitol building accessed right inside all trying to delay the vote that would certify the result of the uh, election back in November. But of course, that went ahead anyway and was done. It is done. It has been certified. But let's talk about the fallout from yesterday. Joining us now is Global News Washington correspondent Reggie Cicchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. How is the city today? Uh, it's it's back to, you know, uh, a regular semblance of normal. Uh, you know, there is a little more security that is outside of the Capitol building this morning with National Guardsmen uh, kind of walking uh, the grounds surrounding the uh, Capitol itself. But outside of that, you know, there's destruction inside. There is kind of a sense of unease outside. But to the naked eye. Uh, everything looks normal again. And you were there yesterday as events started to kind of unfold and get out of hand. Can you describe to us what happened, what you saw? Yeah, look, we saw the crowds of Trump supporters leaving uh, the area just a couple of blocks away from the Capitol uh, on the ellipse where President Trump and Rudy Giuliani and company were kind of uh, egging the crowd on, telling them to take their anger out onto the street. Rudy Giuliani using that language of of trial by combat. Uh, we saw them marching to the Capitol. We were standing on the east front of the Capitol where there were hundreds of th- hundreds and thousands uh, of people gathered on the front steps. We could see the broken glass. We could see the snipers up on, on the roof of the Capitol building. Uh, and as the flashbangs went off uh, and, and cell service started to get, um, uh, you know, limited, uh, we retreated back. Our, our, our bureau was directly across the street. So we had kind of a safe haven there. Um, but there were other media that were inside, you know, locked inside lawmakers' offices. There were other media that had to abandon their equipment that was then burned uh, by these rioters. Uh, and, and it really showed that, you know, in the midst of all of this, uh, the media is still perceived to be uh, the bad guy. What kind of sense did you get from the crowd even earlier in the day with the rallies and everything was uh, was there ever a sense that was it spontaneous you know was there a sense that that was the way it was headed yeah, this is this is why there are serious questions now facing security uh, and the breach of it at the Capitol building, because while President Trump for the last several days had been rallying his troops to come to Washington, D.C., on alt-right social media channels like 4chan uh, and like Parler, for weeks there had been calls uh, for Trump supporters uh, and the like to gather in Washington and ultimately storm the Capitol. This is something that was was discussed. And the fact that uh, that that Capitol Police uh, and federal law enforcement weren't bracing for this and have not put out any kind of public statement uh, in the in the hour since uh, really is opening up question uh, to what systematic failures went on here. Yeah. Can you explain that to us for people who don't understand then who guards those buildings? How did that happen? Yeah, look, the U.S. Capitol Police, they guard the U.S. Capitol building, but they aren't equipped like riot police would be. They're not carrying shields. They're not carrying, uh, you know, that kind of uh, crowd dispersal equipment. Uh, 
and and you know failure to have anything like that deployed quickly like we saw on the protests earlier this summer when the department of justice released all those uh, those personnel um it, it, they were overthrown there's just simply not enough of them to to deal with the crowds but also uh it's been pointed out that capitol hill police uh they are slow to adapt to to kind of new technologies uh and and you know for the calls that they have been facing for years now to increase security and is what is you know arguably one of the most important buildings in the world uh, they failed to do that, uh, and the evidence of that is now is now clear as day. I know. I'm surprised that they haven't even put out a statement on this. So will there be investigations into that, do you think? Yeah, there will be. Uh, there are already Senate committees that are uh, going to be looking into uh, the failures of Capitol Police. Because, look, you know, yes, people broke into the Senate. They broke into the House. They were wandering around Statuary Hall. But at that exact same moment, the vice president... Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, and Chuck Grassley, who's the president pro tempore of the Senate, they were all in the same building. They are number one, two, and three in the line of presidential succession. Uh, Crazy, this yeah. was this was a crisis that could have uh, you know sent American government uh, into a, a downward spiral. Uh, if something had gone wrong. Yeah. What will be done then, Reggie, to charge the people who were sitting in Nancy Pelosi's desk or were in the chamber and infiltrated? Like, what what's going to be done? Yeah, look, there's more than a dozen people that were jailed last night. Uh, unfortunately, some media were hauled away and taken to jail as well, as we often see. Uh, federal law enforcement, U.S. attorneys are going to be looking into this right now. Uh, there are a significant number of federal charges that can be laid. The FBI has put a call out on social media uh, to start identifying these people. Uh, and the thing is, many of these people were maskless. So it makes identification yeah. easier, even if they're wearing masks or, or rather uh, makeup or some kind of, you know, a hat. Uh, their faces are out there, uh, and this is something that won't be done today, but this is going to be an ongoing investigation to try to rally these people up. All right, lots to come. Reggie, thank you. Thank you. Take care. That's Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent. Sounds like then that process that they're about to go through is similar to what we went through here in Vancouver after the Stanley Cup riots in 2011. Remember that? The Vancouver Police Department went through a process of weeks of putting pictures out there on a website and asking people to help them to identify them. So they would go through the tape, they would find people, and they would put those pictures out there. That is now what it sounds like law enforcement is going to do in uh, the United States as well to identify that. This is Mornings with Simi. People all over the world watched what unfolded yesterday in the capital of the United States. World leaders chiming in, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, among others. So what now? We're still two weeks away from Inauguration Day. This morning we did uh, see, hear and see from US President Donald Trump that he said there would be an orderly transition of power. But do we have any evidence to back that up, especially what we saw yesterday? So we wanted to talk more about that. Joining us to share his perspective on all of that and what comes next is Bruce Heyman, former U.S. Ambassador to Canada. Bruce, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure. Good morning. Good morning. Bruce, what do you think is the damage that was done to the United States yesterday? Well, there, there was obviously the physical damage. There was the loss of life, but it's much even greater than that. It's an attack on our democracy. It was an attack that was instigated by the president of the United States calling on his supporters to march to the Capitol to stop a legally identified way in which we hand over power in the United States from one president to another, recognizing the electoral votes. And this is an insurrection. This 
is an attempted coup. This is a man who has lost, in my view, his authority to lead. And the challenge is we have 13 days. And I don't know what each of these next 13 days will hold, but it's a dangerous time uh, for America. And we're watching, I think your newscast has talked about people who are leaving his administration over the last 24 hours. But the Republican Party is going to have to decide what to do here. Yeah. What are they going to do? Are they going to be a pro-Trumpian party in a post-Trump presidency? Or are they going to find their voice and correct their course and realize the damage that has been done and begin the healing process with the Democrats? America is often called a nation of laws. Can they still say that, given what everybody saw happen yesterday? We're a nation of laws, but the question is, how do we uphold the laws? And the reality is that, you know, we've seen a president who has had complete disregard for the law. And so we have to reorient ourselves. We have a lot of damage that has been done. It can be rectified. It can be healed. But make no mistake about it, that's not going to happen magically in 24 hours after January 20th. It's going to take time. And we're going to have to do our work at home to convince those in Canada and other countries around the world that we've got a hold of our democracy again. It's going to be, yeah, you may say it, but you're going to have to demonstrate it. Was, you know, later on when the Senate reconvened to continue the certification process, there were a lot of speeches that were made. Uh, We heard Lindsey Graham finally say, I've reached the end of my rope. This is the next president is Joe Biden. Uh, We have to say that we have to move on. But I thought Mitt Romney's words um, were very significant as well, where he said, we have to tell people the truth. We can't keep lying to them. Yeah, you know, the President Trump has a very difficult time uh, telling the truth, accepting the truth. And, you know, he was duly elected four years ago. I was in Ottawa as the ambassador, and we were part of the handover from the Obama administration to the Trump administration. And while I disagreed with him, while I didn't like him, while I thought he was, you know, you know, hoodwinking America, that he was bamboozling us, that he was conning us, that I still respected the fact that he was elected. And even though I worked the last four years to stand up for U.S.-Canada relations and stand up to when he said things that were incorrect and wrong, he was still the president. Joe Biden's going to be the president. But the problem is Donald Trump has not accepted that, and he has a whole core of supporters who somehow think that this has been stolen, that this election has been um, inappropriately given to Joe Biden. And they're even attacking their own, their own party. You saw it Mm -hmm. with the president going after Republicans in Georgia, the governor, the secretary of state. He's going after now his own vice president and and Mitch McConnell. This is a war within the Republican Party. And again, I think that they're going to have to reconcile this um, to move ahead to be a significant party in America going forward. Are you So you said you're concerned about the next 13 days. We've seen some resignations. Do you think that will make a difference? Do you think anything that has happened in the last 24 hours, even with Mike Pence uh, saying that he won't do what Donald Trump wants, does any of that, do you think, have an impact? 
you know, every bit has an impact. But the reality is we had a storming of, of the Capitol. We had people who were killed as a result of this. We have now news reports of identified pipe bombs and Molotov cocktails around the city. We had people who wanted to do harm at the request of the president of the United States. And so the Republicans have to decide, do we just go through the next 13 days and hope everything works out? Do we do the 25th Amendment of the Constitution and remove his authorities as president? Do we impeach him and all agree that he needs to be impeached? Do we march down like they did with Nixon and force him to resign? Um, but it will take the Republicans to do all any of these things. And so the question is, what are they going to do? I don't know the answer to that. And I think the next 24 to 48 hours will be important to tell how Republicans behave. Yeah, because there, there seemed to be a lot of discussion about some of those things that you just said last night. But I don't see as much discussion about it this morning. Yeah, you know, people always discuss these things. It's like gun control after a shooting in a mm. school. You know, you talk about, you know, gun control, and then all of a sudden, you know, a day or two or three go by and Americans move on to the next thing. This is a pretty serious attack on our democracy. And we shouldn't underestimate how serious it is because it isn't like, oh, that was one day and it just goes away. What's happened in the Trump administration is, as low as we go, we think that's as bad as it can be, and it always gets worse. And so if we think this is as bad as it can be, I, I'm hoping it is, but it's likely it may not be. There are a lot of very inspired people who are following his leadership, and he is a very dangerous man. What went through your mind, Bruce, yesterday, watching that, just like all the rest of us were on TV? How, did, how were you feeling? You know, it's, it's this whole array of emotions when you're shocked into something. You, your tears well up in your eyes because of the, the loss. The anger swells up in, in, in your heart because of, you know, you, something you work so hard for is, you know, being taken away in some small or large part. I worked as a child in that building. I say child, teenager, as an intern for my congressman. I, I was uh, confirmed by the Senate in that building. I have done testimony in that building. I have had significant meetings with leadership in that building. And I can tell you that I revere the, the, the building, but not just the building as an edifice, but as a representation of the democracy of, of what our country is. And so that was very hurtful and harmful and upsetting to me. And then my daughter lives eight blocks away. And then the community, this is just people, young mm-hmm. couples, living dogs and children and in working class. And they're all under threat, you know. So, you know, it's a complicated set of emotions that, that I've, I've experienced and continue to. Well, Bruce, thank you for talking to us about it today. Best of luck. Thank you. And look, we do have a pandemic we have to deal with as well. So be healthy, everyone. You too, please. Bruce Heyman, former U.S. ambassador to Canada, talking about the events, not just of the last 24 hours, but really what got to that point as well. And two more weeks to go until Inauguration Day. This is Mornings with Simi. 
we're talking about the COVID-19 pandemic, looking ahead to that briefing this afternoon when we find out if the health restrictions that has impacted our gatherings and our, our social, you know, all the stuff that we do socially, uh, if they're going to be extended or not. It's been a very difficult time, in particular for restaurants, of course. So let's talk more about that. Joining us is Ian Tossenson, the CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Hi, Ian. Good morning and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. You know, last time we talked was like when all of that was coming down, the New Year's Eve situation. How do you think it went for restaurants? It went poorly. It did not go well, um, largely because it wasn't the, the fact that we had to close early as an industry. I think everybody accepts that, and I certainly agree that everybody accepts that, you know, considering, you know, the pandemic we're in. The issue was really timing and, you know, sort of getting this information the afternoon before when so many goods uh, were were purchased, so many shifts were booked, uh, you know, so many party favors were purchased. And so there was a lot of there was a lot of angst in the industry that they spent money uh, that was going to be difficult for them to recover. So um, but but, you know, there was chaos and uh, the industry was was miraculous, I think, in terms of. And I apologize for anybody that was inconvenienced on behalf of industry, but they were trying to move back later reservations earlier and shuffle it around and, and get that last drink of wine out the door by 8 o'clock. So most people said it was complete chaos. But you know what, Simi, the good side of this, the public, um, they were on board of this. We lost about 30% um, of reservations in general, according to the, the latest survey we did. We know we lost probably millions of dollars. I mean, there's two restaurant groups in, in downtown Vancouver that have four or five restaurants each that lost collectively about a quarter of a million dollars in potential revenue. But no one's grumbling, which I think is so incredible. No one's going, oh, my God, and, you know, this is that. What we, what we are now focused on, and we had a meeting with Dr. Dr. Emerson, who was the deputy of Dr. Henry, yesterday to say, you know, let's, let's look at this a bit differently as opposed to, you know, uh, I need it the, the day before is let's chart this out because we knew that New Year's was coming. We know that St. Patrick's Day is coming and the Super Bowl mm-hmm. is coming and Mother's Day and stuff. So let's chart this out together. Let's be completely optic about it with the public in our industry and say, here's, this is plan A, can, you know, this is what we're under right now. Here's plan A. And if things go really bad, then plan B will kick in and we'll give everybody notice. And I think, I think that Dr. Henry's, uh, the provincial health officer, you know, in, in, like they don't, they don't live the world of restaurants. So they weren't necessarily aware that what they did was right. going to cause all this chaos. And so, but they are more than willing to work with us, you know, in the next five or six months as we come out of this. Do you expect, though, perhaps in the meantime, if these, if the, if this is extended, will we see some restaurant closures, even temporarily, perhaps? We're seeing some temporary closures. Uh, we're starting to see, you know, we'll see probably January, February, some closures. I mean, there were some news reports of restaurants are right against it at the end of the year and talking about unable to pay their rent. But, you know, um, this industry is so resilient. What they want more than anything else is certainty. So just tell me what the capacity is. So if today, which I, I, I don't have any inside information, but my sense is that we'll probably just hold the line for a bit longer here. Um, we did ask the, the, the government whether they could consider just repurposing a little bit. You could go to a restaurant with your safe six versus your household. I'm not so sure they're going to make that 
right. a change yet because the numbers aren't quite where they want. And we're fine with that. We can live with that as long as we know the rules. And the last health order, and this came out, I, I was quite surprised. People said, we don't really care what the order is. As long as it's in place, it's consistent, and we can work with it, and then we can make the proper adjustments for our business. So right. uh, it, it's a, it's an interesting industry, how well they adapt to yeah. uh to adversity. Uh, what about the cap on delivery fees? Has that helped at all? Hmm. That's an interesting one. So it's, it was uh, it, it upwards of 30% and the government capped it at 15% with the 5% uh, extra fees for credit card processing and stuff. What we're seeing right now are these, uh, the preliminary information is that these, these companies, I don't mind naming them because Skip the Dishes, DoorDash and Uber Eats, they tend to be playing games. They're starting to find ways of adding fees. So it might mm. be a little extra for the delivery and a little bit extra for a service charge here and there. So we ha- we're going to have to go back to government and, and ask them to tighten this up a little bit because I'm really surprised. I continue to be surprised by these businesses that are partners with us in industry. And we're almost going to start to have a turnaround in this industry that they wouldn't want to be more sincere and open about working with us, despite the fact that I asked them, the government, you know, talked to them before they imposed these things. And now I'm hearing everybody going, you know what, they're playing games with us. So uh, we're going to have to go back to that. But it is better than it was. And there was a little bit of money. So uh, one restaurant, um, what did they say? I think they had four restaurants on New Year's. A lot of their business shifted to takeout at the last minute, which was chaos, but they got it through. And I think they made, you know, instead of sort of breaking even, they made $10,000 or something in their four restaurants, which was better than what they were doing before. Right. You're right, though, about the adaptation of the industry. I mean, that's that's something that you hope everybody learns and stays with, right? Even as this moves forward, because you, you what you just said struck with me here is that we're right around the corner from once again, St. Patrick's Day and Super Bowl Sunday. Those are generally quite busy days for restaurants. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I just, it, it was really interesting because we were a little bit, not angry, but we were sort of like, really? But when you talk to the PHO, they were so honest about it. So, you know, we really, you know, we've got so much going on here. And I think the public should, should sort of take this uh, at face value. They've got so much going on, so much reporting, so many outbreaks, so many problems they're just trying to solve. They don't sort of go, hey, now we understand the economics of restaurants. This isn't a good idea. Right. She was getting some information, the Dr. Henry was, pardon me, uh, from various sources that there was. And, there, and what the fact is there were. There were I heard that there's a lodge in Worcester that when the restaurants closed, they had 70, 60 reservations in 45 minutes so people could continue on. So... She hears, Dr. Henry hears that kind of stuff and gets worried. And so her natural reaction is to shut it down. Our natural reaction is we can work with you longer term, put a plan in place. And if you said to us on New Year's, two weeks beforehand, we're going to close, we would have gladly closed. It would have been fine. Right. Well, that's good to know, right? That there's going to be more cooperation in the future. But Ian, listen, thank you. Thanks, Simi. Have a great day. That's Ian Tostenson, President and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association, hoping that things are better this time. But they've told the public health officer that, listen, we need more communication, hopefully lots of lessons learned, no more situations like we had on New Year's Eve, which was disastrous for a lot of restaurants out there.